So when I was um, graduating from college a long time ago, and I, uh, I, I lived at home for about a year, and then I was moving into my first apartment on my own. I, we, I grew up in the eastern part of, a rich, in, of Richmond in Henrico County in a little a rural community called Verina. And uh, I was moving into the city. I worked in the West End. It was what was then called Christian Children's Fund, a child sponsorship agency. And uh, I, I, was, I was renting this little above-ground basement apartment in, in the fan, which is a, a section in, in downtown Richmond. And, uh, and, and so I, my phone rings, and, and it's my mom on the other, other end of the line. And, and, and she's making small talk. I can, I can tell, right? You know your parents, right? She, she wants to ask me something, but she's trying to, right? He's moving out. He needs to be on his own. He needs to make his own decisions. But I can, I can tell she's not just calling to chit-chat. She's, she's, she, she feels like she, she's compelled to, to intercede. And so finally it comes. She says, she said, have you, have you picked up all your staples? I was like, No. I don't, I don't have any staples. I don't, I don't know why I would need staples. So she keeps, you know, asking over and over, and she keeps working it in in different ways, and she, I can tell she's starting to get irritated with me. And so, I mean, this went on for several minutes, and so finally I said, Mom, if I need to staple something together, I'm just going to take it to the office where I work. They got staplers there. Right, and she just starts laughing. It's like, why is she laughing? She said, I'm not talking about those kinds of staples. I'm talking about the things that you need in your pantry so that you can cook a decent meal for yourself so you're not eating at McDonald's every night. Right? I didn't know they were called staples. Anybody else, right? Is that news to you, right? Staples, who knew? Staples apparently is part of the language of home preparation for all the things that you're supposed to, like sugar and all these other things. She starts going down, down the list. I was like, no, and I don't have any of those either, right? I can't put two pieces of paper together, and I can't cook food for myself. So I'm failing as a young adult. And, and then she says, and don't forget to get end dust for your floors. So I, next time I'm at the at the store, I pick up what I think is end dust. I didn't know that there's a difference between end dust and furniture polish, but there is a big difference between end dust and furniture polish because in this above ground basement apartment, there were only hard tile floors. And so I went through my whole apartment and sprayed furniture polish everywhere, right? And then I had a mop and then I, and, and, and I could have, I kid you not, after three months, I could have been an Olympic skater. I could have. I was training every day, barely, barely surviving and not brave. If people came over, I was like, just be careful as you're walking. Some idiot put furniture polish on the floor, and I don't know. I don't know who did it. Right? There's, there's, there's a language to home economics. There, there's, a, there's a language to the home that, that, I, that was unfamiliar to me. I, I'm sharing you those stories because this series matters to us as a church. Because there is a language to discipleship. There's a language to discipleship. And, and if a church does not have a discipleship language that they understand, then, then people, they're just going to keep showing up at church, but they're probably not going to be doing the work of discipleship. 
That there's a language that a church should have that they share with each other. That challenge, so we challenge one another, we inspire one another. It, it gives us a, a mechanism to understand what the Bible is saying. Because sometimes, right, it's an it's it's an ancient book written in an ancient time to an ancient people, and so some your discipleship language has to modernize a little bit to help bridge understanding praxis is part of our discipleship language here as a church. We don't just want to do church, we want to be church. We, we, we don't just want to be the benefactor of Jesus' grace so that we can go to heaven. We want to do the work that he's asking us to do to become like him so good deeds will flow from our lives. So maybe some other people in watching us are going to be inspired to follow him too. There is a language to discipleship here at City Life Church. Well, one of these words is pathways. Pathways. A lot of people call them spiritual disciplines. We call them pathways because they take us somewhere. Now, I'm not going to do a big recap. If, if you're visiting tonight, you want to, this is of interest to you. You can go back and listen to some of the other ones in the series. But there's going to be a slide that's going to come up. That's going to, I just want to read what we, what we mean when we say pathways. There's, there's 12 of them. Scripture, prayer, fasting, and worship. These are pathways. They, they take us somewhere in our journey of discipleship. Let's look at the next slide. There's gathering and reaching and relationship and accountability. A couple of weeks ago, we gave at length definitions for each of these. Again, if this is new for you, you can also get a green book called Practice in the Back from a person with a blue shirt. They're free. And one more. We got service, generosity, stewardship, and rest. The, the, these, these are the, what I call the activity of Christianity. The, this, the, these 12 things connect you to the Christian experience. The, this is the doing part of our faith. We already talked about in communion how Jesus is the only one that can change our heart, but he expects us to participate in that transformative work. He, he expects us to do some things to posture and to position ourselves to receive from him. And I would say that's part of what these pathways do. The next slide that comes up last week, again, if you weren't here, you can check that out. We talked about the red and yellow and green test. We've talked about the last couple of weeks, how you can assess to see if these pathways are present in your life. It, it matters because pathways produce virtues and virtues produce godly deeds. Right? This has been part of this series. Pathways are the, the work of Christianity, and as we do that work, it's like we're, we're tilling the garden of our soul, creating a spiritually vibrant environment inside of us so that virtues can grow, like kindness and forgiveness. There's 24 virtues that we teach as a church that we've been working through in this series. Those virtues matter because out of virtue flow godly deeds. And godly deeds matter because of this, this verse here which has been the pinnacle of the series. Matthew 16, 24, 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, that includes you and I. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, which is his way of saying, if you keep trying to do it your way instead of my way, you're going to lose it. Right? It's counterintuitive. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit 
if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul. The Reverend Dr. Earl Palmer talks about this being, saying, put, putting the full weight of your life on Jesus. That's a good phrase, isn't it? Is anything worth more than your soul? Here it comes. For the Son of Man will come with his angels. This is him telling us the end of the story, right? Spoiler alert. He's saying, I want you to know what's going to happen. The Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of the Father and will judge all people, including us, according to their deeds. In the Greek, that, that word is praxis, which means good deeds. The, the, this idea of praxis means good deeds that flow from good people, not good in our own right, but good because of who Christ is inside of us. So Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be a test, right? School just started this week. A lot of teachers probably use that phrase, right? There's going to be a test. I'm letting you know in advance. Jesus is saying there's going to be a test. There's going to be a conversation that we have with him. We, we, we as a church want to get you ready for that conversation. Not just because of that judgment that's waiting for you, but because, but because of the work that those good deeds do in this world to point other people to Christ so that they can be there with us too. Pathways produce virtues, and virtues produce godly deeds. I want godly deeds to flow from my life. I want godly deeds to flow from your life. Can we talk about that being part of our overflow? Are godly deeds part of the overflow of your life? Last week I introduced you to this idea that not only are there 12 pathways, but there are 12 principles that govern the 12 pathways. We did six last week. I'm hoping that we're going to get through the last six tonight. Somebody say covenant. The first one is of, of this grouping of six is, is the principle of covenant. Now, in Genesis 15, 7 to 17, I'm not going to read all that, but the, 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 the verses will pop up on the screen if you're a note taker. Also, we always put the notes online on our website with each week's sermon that if you want a reference, you can always find it there. When, 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 when I was growing up, we went in Verina, we went to this little country Episcopal church, Verina, Verina Episcopal. And, 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 and my parents' leverage of behavior, right, because the Episcopal church wasn't like this church. Right? you got to be quiet. You don't get, I, don't, I still don't get, you cannot turn around. I don't understand that rule, right? When you sit there, you were, you were never allowed to turn around. I would turn around and look at something. My mom would say, don't turn, turn around. Like, why? why? Why aren't we allowed to turn around in church, right? So you sit there and, 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 and if you had a friend that was allowed to sit with you, right, you're playing tic-tac-toe and you're writing notes. But if, if we misbehaved, my punishment was that I couldn't watch Tarzan on Sunday afternoons on TV, right? Yeah. We did not have video games, when I, right? None of that was real. We had black, I had a black and white television with a show Tarzan on it. My favorite episode of Tarzan, I know this makes me a little bit morbid, but welcome to your pastor. My favorite episode of Tarzan was when this, this warring tribe of people caught some hunters that were poaching animals for trophies, and they attached them to trees in a very unique way, right? They, they took a tree and they folded it down diagonally here. And then they took another tree and folded it down diagonally there. And then they tied the person to the tree. And then they released the trees. And now there are two people instead of one. You with me? P pulls them apart. I, I, I share that with you because there's a story in the Bible that's very reminiscent of that. 
that God uses to teach Abram, he hasn't changed his name yet to Abraham, about covenant. And, and, he, and he comes to Abram because Abram is saying, God, you're making some pretty big promises to me about my descendants being like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. I don't even have one child yet. I, how is this going to be possible? I, I'm not sure it's, you're going to do it. And, 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 and so God speaks to him and says, says, Abram, I want you to go and gather some animals, and I want you to split them right down the middle, right? He didn't tear them apart with trees. He used a sword. And so he, he takes, right, the, a lot of the Old Testament, right? It's brutal. And he takes these animals, and he cuts them in half. And, and, on, and, and, and God says, hey, I want you to put one half the animal here and one half the animal there. And he makes this whole lane, right? It's bloody of all these animals that have been cut in half, different kinds of animals. And then, and then it says that, that, that Abram falls into this, this deep sleep, not, not because he's tired, but it's like God's inviting him into this deep spiritual place. And, and, and in that, he has a vision of, of a torch and a, a fire pot. We don't have time to go into that, but represents the Spirit of God. Passes between these, these animals, as a promise to Abram that God's going to keep his promise. What on earth is that about? You ever read the Old Testament? Sometimes you're going, what is that? Because in ancient times, there was a ritual. that a, When a lesser king was making an oath to a greater king, they would take animals and they would cut them in half. And they would line the sides making a lane and the lesser and the and the greater king would be would be sitting at the end and the lesser king would walk between these animals making all of their promises to the greater king and and continually repeating that if i do not keep my promises be it unto me as it's been done to these animals it's powerful isn't it see see what we understand is that Not only was God making a covenant with Abram, but he's the greater king in the story. He's not supposed to be the one that passes between the animals. That should have been Abram, right? But he's giving us a prophetic picture of what he's going to do for us through his son Jesus. He's giving us a picture. He's saying to Abram, I know that you're not going to keep your end of the bargain. In fact, I know that none of your descendants are going to keep their end of the bargain. You, you're, you don't have the capacity because of the inclination of human nature to always to be to self. You're never going to be able to keep this covenant. But that's okay because when you fail, when humanity fails, I'm willing to take the punishment that belongs to you upon myself. Where Jesus was torn asunder on the cross. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? So, so when Jesus invites us into this thing called discipleship, He's saying to you and to me, I've already paid the price of your failure so that you have the opportunity to live in this covenant and experience the fullness of life that no one deserves. So, so, so when you wake up tomorrow and you think to yourself, do I really want to read the Bible with my coffee? Think of an animal that's been torn. You're, you're tracking with me? The, the, the work of opening a book to read some scripture compared to what we deserve, I'm not sure we can consider these things a burden. 
See, something has to shift in our mindset and our mentality when we look at these 12 pathways as if we see them as a burden, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. They're not the burden. I've borne the burden that you should have deserved so that you can do these things that are going to be life-giving to you. At some point, we have to say to our humanity that everything that God asks of me is for my best interest, and I'm going to trust him in it. Somebody say changelessness. Changelessness, the principle of changelessness. I learned how to be sneaky originally from my mother. Because when I was a little kid, the candy in the movie theater was, was expensive just like it is today, right? So my mom, anybody else's mother did this? This is why Mother Carrie, I, my mom called it a pocketbook. I get in trouble. Vanessa's not in here, so I can talk about her. But I'm not allowed to call it a pocketbook. It's a purse, right? It's a purse. But I grew up, and, and it was called a pocketbook. And, and my mom's pocketbook was always really big because whenever we needed something, she could reach in there. It was always in there. It was like Harry Potter, right? It was just always there. It was like magic in that, in that, in that pocketbook. And, and we went to the, to the movies. We would go to the store, and my mom would buy candy. She would sneak it in to the movie theater in her pocketbook, right? See, I'm telling you, if you're a parent, your kids are watching. Right? That's how I learned, right, to do things I shouldn't have done. But, but, there's, but those candies, I still love them. I can't eat those candies anymore, right, because they're dental work extractors is what they are. Milk duds, anybody? Oh, anybody? Good and plenty? Who are my licorice people? I love licorice. Any other licorice people in here? I know there's about three of us in the room. That's it, on the peninsula. Licorice, good and plenty. Juji fruits, raisinets. I, like, I didn't like raisinets when I was a kid, but the older I got, I like, like chocolate-covered raisins. Junior mints. Anybody? I know. See? Class. Every now and then you go into the drugstore and there's a whole bin of the classic candies. Right? I just am pushing them right into my pushing them right into my basket. There's, there's things in, in life for us that, that 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 even if it's old, it's still good. Changelessness. Jeremiah 6 16 talks about the ancient paths. In Genesis 2, 21 through 23, the first part of that, we see that, that, that God makes Eve for Adam. And, 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 and as he awakens to the, the beauty of woman, right, the, 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 the Genesis narrative captures his excitement and his, his enthusiasm. And still, right, for hundreds and thousands of years later, right, our hearts are still captured by the beauty of our wives. Changelessness. That which will never change because it is and has been and will always be perfect just like it is. And the 12 pathways are just that. Technology will influence how I engage the pathways. We get it. The musical instruments we use today is different from what we read in the book of Psalms, but it's still psalmic worship. Cultural preferences will, will influence our approach to certain things, but the essence of these pathways, they, they do not change. And if Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, guess what? It's still going to be the same 12. They're changeless. There's something in them that postures and positions us in our relationship with Christ that will never, ever change. As much as technology has changed 
the human experience, we are never going to get to a place where we could say as devoted followers of Christ, I don't need to do those things anymore. From the birth of the church 2,000 years ago, those 12 things are what the devoted followers of Christ were doing. We're still doing it today and passing it on for generations to come. Come on. Conspicuousness. Somebody say conspicuousness. A lot of syllables tonight. I know you're trying. I hear you out there. Conspicuousness. Proverbs 8, 1 through 9. Listen to this. Listen as wisdom calls out. Hear as understanding raises her voice on the hilltop along the road. She takes her stand at the crossroads by the gate at the entrance to the town. On the road leading in, she cries aloud, I call to you, to all of you. I raise my voice to all people. Simple people use good judgment. You foolish people show some understanding. Listen to me, for I have important things to tell you. Everything I say is right, for I speak truth and detest every kind of deception. My advice is wholesome. There is nothing devious or crooked in it. My words are plain to anyone with understanding, clear to those with knowledge. I believe that, that wisdom in the Proverbs is a prophetic picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This idea of, of, of being conspicuous, I, I believe that there is a self-evidencing quality to these 12 pathways. J just like in Proverbs, it's talking about wisdom. It's, it's that we, we recognize wisdom when it speaks to us. The problem is not whether or not we recognize wisdom. The, the question is, will we do it? Will we submit ourselves to it? Will we give ourselves to it? Will we follow it? But, but the voice of wisdom, there's a self-evidencing quality to it. The same with these 12 pathways. We, we look at these 12 pathways, something inside of us, even if we don't understand everything that they are, even if we're new to Christianity, I think there is something inside of us that looks at those 12 and says, you know what? If I'm going to be spiritually healthy, I can see that those things are important and that they matter. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 14 talks about us having the mind of Christ talks about the Holy Spirit searching the heart of God and then revealing what he finds to us. And if we've been born into the family of God, then because we have the mind of Christ, we understand these spiritual things, the principle of conspicuousness. The next one is the principle of confrontation. That's a little easier to say. Somebody say confrontation. Well, no, see, you can do that one. Matthew 4.1 is a scary verse in the Bible. It tells us that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. doesn't say he was tricked out there. doesn't say he took a wrong turn. His, his GPS went out and his blue line took him the wrong way. The Holy Spirit led him there. The principle of confrontation. How many of you know that there's always spiritual resistance at moments of our greatest breakthrough? 1 Peter 5.8 reads this way, Stay alert. Watch out for your enemy, your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. When, when our lives begin to take on some spiritual momentum, moving in the right direction, especially when this, when these 12, with these 12 pathways, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be things that the enemy does to put obstacles in our way. We should not be surprised by it. We should expect it. As we look through the 
the narrative of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then continuing on to the early church, we see this pattern of confrontation, the principle of confrontation. There's always spiritual resistance at moments of breakthrough. Jesus, after his baptism, how about Jesus in Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal? How about Peter just after Jesus' arrest? And then if there's anybody who experienced resistance before breakthrough, it was the Apostle Paul. Listen to his own account. He says, are they servants of Christ, comparing him to these other people that are stirring up trouble in the church of Corinth? He says, I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder. I've been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number. Right? This is his list of confrontation. I faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Five different times that happened to Paul. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. Come on. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people. I have faced danger in cities and in desert and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty, have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without even enough clothing to keep me warm. And this is, I love this. I think this is Paul giving us a little insight into a sense of humor. He lists this incredible list of just terrible suffering. And then he says, and besides all that, I have the burden and concern for all the churches. He's saying, if you think that's bad, you should try being a pastor, right? So good. Yes, Paul, it is true. Not of these people, though. Not of these people. Not of these people. Right? It, it, right? There's, there, the, Paul, this is an incredible list. Dare I say, will any of us experience just a small fraction of these? Maybe some will, but most of us, most of us will not. But even if your confrontation doesn't look like this, there's confrontation that's coming for us. There's always resistance that the enemy has planned for us. This is important. We're sharing this because if, if, if this series gets a hold of you like it has gotten a hold of us for these last 10 years that we've been teaching it here at City Life Church, we, we want you to know that as you go down this road, as you build spiritual momentum in your life, to not be discouraged when confrontation comes because it's waiting for you, but you'll push through it just like everybody did in the Bible. Confrontation. The principle of centrality. Two more. The principle of centrality. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. What's Jesus talking about there? He's saying you've got to order your life in the right way if you want the right outcomes. You've got to order your life in the right way if you want the right outcomes. See, the rest of everything in my life is dependent upon my diligence in pursuit of discipleship. Seeking first the kingdom of God and righteousness. What's righteousness? It's virtue. Jesus is saying, hey, you've, this isn't the only thing that your life is going to be about, but it's got to be the core of it. It's not the only thing that your life is supposed to be about, but it's supposed to be at the center of it. You've heard me say it many times. I'm going to be a better father, a better husband, a better son, a better friend, a better neighbor the better I am at following Jesus in discipleship. 
all the rest of the human experience that God has gifted to us, the fulfillment of it, the meaningfulness of it, the effectualness of it is going to flow from the core of my commitment to this life called discipleship. We talk about this as a principle of giving. Do you believe in the, in the principle of tithing like we do here? What we're saying is that 100% of my income without God's blessing and favor is ultimately less than 90% of my income with God's favor. It's the principle of first fruits. The 12 pathways are also the principle of first fruits. It makes a little bit more sense to us with giving because we've been hearing it our whole lives. What we forget is that the principle of first fruits is not just for giving, it's for living. And, and these pathways are about me giving the first fruits of my life to him. So virtue can grow in me, so godly deeds can flow. The last one is this, the principle of Christ. This isn't in my notes, but I, I want to read it for you. This is out of, of Revelation 4. This is John's vision of heaven. It says, In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, and the third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. And each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. And day after day and night after night, Day after day, night after night, they keep on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's that they say over and over and over again. I remember being younger in my faith and, and, and as I read through the Bible the first time and got to that and I thought to myself, you think he ever lets him sing a different song? Does it really mean that over and over and over for all eternity? They, they're going to keep saying the same thing over and over and over? And this is whatever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, right? So now they're the four creatures. Now there's 24 elders that are, are, are surrounding that. And it says every time they sing the song, they do the same thing. The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And then it says they lay their crowns before the throne. And then they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So you got four creatures. They're all singing the same song for all eternity. And every time they sing it, and then it prompts the 24 elders, and then they do it again over and over and over and over. How is that possible? How is it at some point one of those elders doesn't say, I got an idea for something new? something different. But see, that feeling that I have had, that maybe you've had, we are ascribing the human experience into heavenly places. When what we're supposed to be doing is let the experience of heavenly places be ascribed to the human experience. See, in Revelation, this, 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 this is the key in 21.5. It says, And the one sitting on the throne looked and said this, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. I am making everything new. See, heaven is different from earth. Heaven is different from earth. And one of the ways that it's different is that in the glory of God, even if you're singing the same song for 10,000 years, 
it's just as good the last time as it was the first time. I don't, movie theaters are, are my metaphors and analogies tonight. I remember when, I don't even know what movie we were at, it, our kids were little, probably elementary school age. They're all young adults now. And we're sitting there waiting for the movie to start, eating the candy that Vanessa snuck in in her pocketbook. And, and, and Ethan looks up and he says, Dad, can I ask you something? I was like, yeah. He said, uh, we bought tickets to get in here, right? Yeah, yeah. We only sneak candy and we don't sneak in to see the movie. He says, well, Dad, when the movie's over, what's to stop us from just walking out and going into another theater and watching another movie and another movie and another movie? I was like, I know. You could, but no one does that. Because after you sit through two hours, you've had your fill. Maybe some people do it, but most people don't. It's called the law of diminishing marginal returns. Now, I know for some of you, you don't remember what a newspaper is or how we bought them. But there used to be these boxes all around cities. All around cities. And you would put a quarter, which is a little piece of metal. It's a coin, an actual coin with no bit in front of it. It was real metal that you could put in your pocket. And you would put it in this, this, this box, and you would put a quarter in it, and, and that quarter, you, you would push the button, and it would open the door. And when it opened the door, you could take every newspaper that was in the box. If there were 10 newspapers in there, no one was guarding it. There was no Apple iTag on it. You, you could take every single newspaper out of that box that you wanted, but no one did. Why? Because the value of a second newspaper was so little that you wouldn't even steal it and take it for free if you could have it. It's economics, the law of diminishing marginal returns. That's part of the human experience. In heaven, there's no such thing as the law of diminishing marginal returns. In heaven, what we have is the glory of God. And it only gets better day after day. The 12 pathways is part of the work that we're going to do in this life. Are some of them going to be present there? I think some are. I think so, right? we know that worship's going to be a part of heaven, right? We we know that some of these pathways are going to be present there, but 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 while we're here, we're 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 not. We're, it's not as though God is saying, "I want you to practice them here." I, I, you hear people say that sometimes. Maybe there's some theology in that. I I don't know, but I don't think that's God's motivation. I I, I think He's saying, "Hey, do these things because they'll change who you are." Do these things. I don't think he's trying to get us ready for the practice of heaven. I think he's trying to get us ready for the experience of it. And the best way that we're going to experience what heaven has to us is not just that we're going to be there, but that we rush into that place full of the virtue of Christ carrying with us a story of many godly deeds 
that touched so many other people that while we're there, they're going to find us and say, one of the reasons I'm here is because of you. Invite the keys to come back up. Let's shift gears a little bit here. If you've been coming to our church for any amount of time, every, every, every Saturday this year, we've been doing what we call our welcome home moment. And if you've been here for all of these Saturdays, it's for you so that you learn a little bit about what we mean when we say the gospel, but it's also for you to learn so maybe it's going to take hold in you and then you're going to be able to explain it to someone else who maybe God causes to cross your path. Or it could be that someone's in here every week. There's hundreds of people watching online every week. Maybe they've never even heard it before, and it's for them. Because we believe that every one of us, when we were born into this world, we were born with lots of hungers and desires. Like little Cleo making her first pre- her first physical presence at church tonight. She was born with all kinds of desires. But she was born with the same desire that all of us were born with when we had our first day. It's right from the beginning. It's the desire to know God and to be known by him. It's our greatest desire. It's also our greatest dilemma because as we look back over the story of our lives, we all have regrets. We have, we have, we have mistakes that we've made, our overflow. The Bible calls those mistakes sin, and that's, that sin keeps us separated from God. We're born into this world separated from him. Our sin keeps us separated from him. And one day when we stand before God and give an account for our lives, not the judgment that we've been talking about. The judgment we've been talking about is the judgment for people who are part of God's family, the judgment of good deeds. But there's another judgment that the Bible talks about that's a sobering judgment. And the outcome of that judgment determines our eternity. Because the Bible tells us that God, in God's justice system, the smallest sin is worthy of eternal death. And for us as a church, we, we want to change the experience of people in that judgment. Because for too many people, the first time they ever have a sense of knowing God and being known by Him is going to be on, on that day, and that breaks my heart. So us as a church, like churches for 2,000 years, they keep telling the story of the gospel. It's called the gospel Because in our modern day language, it means good news. And the reasons why it's good news is because Jesus says, I'm the answer to all of that. I'm the answer to all of that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The people that are going to be getting baptized next weekend, come on. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus didn't just die for us to be forgiven, although that's an important part of it. He died for us so we could be changed, transformed, changes who we are from the inside out. So, so that one day when we stand before him on that day of that first judgment, we don't have to stand in fear of condemnation of eternal death. We stand with a humble hope of the invitation that's been promised to us to step into eternal life, the gospel the good news of Jesus. We're telling that story every week so people can hear it and hearing they might believe and believing they might make their own confession of faith. Stand with me. 
If you're part of our online church community, there's a button you can push. You can go to a private chat room. Someone will be there to pray with you. If, if this idea of the gospel is new for you, they'd love to talk with you more about it. I'm going to pray in just a minute, but then at the end of the service, I'm going to be, uh, Vanessa's going to be down here, somebody else. There's always people at the altar every Saturday after church to pray with you. If, if you look back over the story of your life and you can't find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, like I did in December of 1990, if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, you can look back in your story, you can find it. If you can't find it, come and pray with someone. Find it today. Find it today. Jesus, help us to heed your words. Help us to not take lightly this responsibility that you have given to us to follow after you. We know you're going to do your work. Help us do ours. To posture and position our lives with these pathways so that virtue can grow and flourish in us, displacing all of the ugly things that are inside of us so that godly deeds can be the natural outflow of who we are. For your greater glory, for the witness that they will be to many, for the eternity that's calling out to them. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen.